Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, our first speaker tonight is Jeff Zwierink. Uh, He is a research scholar at Reasons to Believe, which is a ministry you'll hear a little more about uh, a little later. Uh, Jeff writes and speaks on the compatibility of science of the Christian faith and on evidence for intentional design from multiverse theory, exoplanets, and artificial intelligence. He has uh, written a number of different books, uh, one of which at least is available for us tonight. He has a bachelor's degree in physics, a PhD in astrophysics, with a focus on gamma rays from Iowa State. Uh, Prior to joining Reasons to Believe, he taught and ran a planetarium at Loras College in Dubuque, Iowa, and also holds a part-time position as a project scientist at UCLA. So he has come to us uh, tonight from Los Angeles. So very grateful for Jeff and his willingness to join us tonight. So Jeff, come on, come forward. I appreciate the opportunity to be here because this I get to talk about something that has fascinated me for a long time. And I remember a great piece of counsel or a comment my dad made to me that's ah, better than 35 years ago now, because I'd had a chance when I was in high school to go out to West Point. I'd won a science competition, and I got to go out and visit out there, and they had a various things, various speakers coming along. But while we were out there, we took a trip down into New York, and they had a chance to go see Stephen Jay Gould. Now, I don't know how many of you know who Stephen Jay Gould is, but he's one of the most more prominent uh, evolutionary biologists Uh, particularly in the 1980s when this was going on. And there were some people out of our group that went in and got to go see him. And, uh, you know, we got to kind of talking about it afterwards. And so as I got home, I was talking with my dad and, you know, just kind of describing what he was saying in his talk. I didn't actually get to see the talk, but I was recounting some of what our discussion was. And as we were talking about that, one of the things that Stephen Jay Gould was advocating is that for Darwinian evolution, the dominant idea was you've got this organism that comes into being and just slowly over time, it changes into other things, it branches off, things get more and more complex. And over long periods of time, you're going to get the diversity of life that we see on earth today. And as scientists had looked at the the fossil record and the archaeological record, what they realized is that that didn't quite give a really good picture of what was going on. And so Stephen Jay Gould had come up with this idea of punctuated equilibrium. And the idea behind that was there were these organisms, and as, you know, things kind of stayed similarly, and something happened, and you see these kind of rapid changes where things change very rapidly, and then you've got long periods of kind of equilibrium again. And so it was kind of rapid changes punctuated by long periods of equilibrium. And I was recounting this to my dad, and we were sitting there and talking about that, and the comment that he made that stood out to me to this day was, he looked at that and he says, that looks a lot like a creation account. And it got me thinking that, you know, you're right. It's, there's this idea that's supposedly godless and just takes all of this stuff and you end up with everything. And as scientists are describing that, the description they give, though they wouldn't use these terms, looks a lot like a creation account. And what I want to show or at least argue today or get, present evidence for is that as we advance in our scientific knowledge, things look a lot more like a creation account. And so that's kind of the context of asking the question, are science and faith, science and Christianity enemies or allies? The question is, is as science progresses, is it antagonistic to what Christianity says, or does it align with it, and so that they're actually saying the same thing? And to really evaluate that, one of the things that I have found very, very critical is to actually ask the question, what does Christianity actually say, and what does the science actually say? 
Because it's very easy to mischaracterize one or the other or both of those. And when you start mischaracterizing or being slip, uh, slippery or shoddy in how you describe things, it's to make anything look ridiculous. And so I thought it's very important that we actually ask the question, what does science say? What does Christianity have to say? And so in the context of Christianity, to be able to evaluate is science an enemy or an ally, it's important to understand what Christianity has to say about the world and who, it is, who exists and what it goes and what it's all about. And so as Christianity goes, at the start of the day and at the end of the day, the one thing that just exists is God. And God reveals himself to us in two different ways. He reveals himself to us through the words of Scripture. He reveals himself to us through his created creation. Now, we don't get the privilege of just saying, oh, let's just go read and look at this and understand, because I'm pretty sure like most people, like me at least, most people in here don't understand biblical Hebrew or Greek, and so they can't just read the Bible. There's, there's something that has to happen. We have to study that. And so when we look at the words of Scripture, we actually go through a very rigorous process of figuring out what is it actually saying. We look at what the words mean, and there's different words have different meanings, and words words are used together, they have different phrases, and there's different genres, and you can have figures of speech, and you have to look at what Genesis is saying and compare that to what's going on in Proverbs, and what's going on in Matthew, and what's going on in Revelation. And I'm just going to put a huge categorical term on all of that and say we've got to do our systematic theology and when we do our systematic theology, we end up with a biblical interpretation. Nothing controversial there. Similarly, we don't just get to go look at creation and say, oh, here's what's going on. We generally have to go look very carefully at it. We have to look at what the rocks and the structures of the rocks, and we look at the stars, and we look at the elements, and we do a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, you know, we compare the findings here with the findings there, and we make models to figure out what's going on and how does that work. And I'm going to put this big cool term on it that I'm just going to call science. And when we do our science, we end up with a scientific interpretation. Now, if Christianity is correct, then God reveals himself in these two ways. We go look at his revelation. We come up with interpretations. What's true if God exists is that if God has revealed himself, by definition, his revelations must agree. But our interpretations can differ. And what I've found is that very often where I see people say, oh, Christianity says and science says and therefore they're in opposition, it's the reality of it is it's the interpretations that are different, not the actual revelation itself. So that's why I think it's very important that we understand what is the Bible actually saying? What is science actually saying? And my history, my experience has been, whenever I've dug into any of these many areas where it looked like science and Christianity were in conflict, I found that it's a conflict of interpretation, not of what's actually going, not of the actual revelations themselves. Now, one more thing we need to understand as we're exploring what's going on and, and whether science and Christianity are enemies or allies is we need to understand how God acts in creation. Because there's a very popular idea, and I think it's kind of waning, but it's certainly still out there, is that God acts in the things that we can't explain. He, he works in the miraculous. So where there's something that's going on that we can't explain, that's where God's at work. And I don't doubt that God's at work there, but that's not the only place he's at work. And in fact, as we look at God's revelation, we find that he says something far more than that. That if God has created everything, that his creation is there, that God works in multiple ways that we find as revealed through Scripture and as we understand what it says about Scripture. We find that God <clears throat> upholds creation. This is his ordinary providence, if you put it in theological terms. And this is the idea, uh, you know, I corrected a, a bad idea I had for a long time. I kind of had, had this idea that, okay, God created everything and it just poofed and it's, whether he poofed it or not, but it's just kind of sitting there running along and God's kind of watching what's going on. And I realized, no, theologians have said that's not the right way to look at that. The right way to look at it is that God creates the universe 
He upholds the universe. If he were to withdraw his hands from the universe, it wouldn't just keep running. It would tumble into non-existence. In fact, he upholds it so reliably and regularly that we can talk about things like the laws of physics. Things are so orderly, reliable, because ultimately that's anchored in his character. And so the idea of being able to do science makes very good sense in this view because God upholds creation so reliably. But that's not the only way God interacts with creation. Sometimes he interacts in what I would call a transcendent fashion. And that would be, you know, kind of beyond the laws of physics. Like in the beginning, God created the universe. If there's no universe, there can't be any physics to describe it. So to create a universe would require acting beyond the laws of physics. And so there are these things that could appear, or would appear often to defy or work outside the laws of physics. So God is certainly capable, and there are places where Scripture seems to record that he does that. But those, that's not the whole picture either, because God sometimes uses physical processes to accomplish his goals. In fact, it's remarkable to me how many times when you look through the miracles that are being done, for example, when Jesus healed at least one of the blind men, he didn't just say, your sight is restored, spit on the ground, made a puddle of mud, wiped that on its side. What's the physical process there for? Now, it may be that it's something else, but it could be that there's something that by understanding the physical processes, we may understand why the man's sight was healed. And so God is using, nonetheless, it's still miraculous, but God may be using physical processes to accomplish his goal. And so what this does is, by having this more robust picture of how God interacts in creation, we don't paint ourselves into this picture or into this corner where the more we understand through science, the less evidence there is for God. And if God only works in the things we don't understand, then the more science advances, the smaller God gets. But that's not the, that's not the way God has revealed things. That's not the way Scripture reveals God's activity in creation. In fact, the very laws of physics are a reflection or a consequence of God's action in creation. Him using those to accomplish his purpose is also God acting in creation. And him acting beyond the laws of physics is him acting in creation. And so with that context now, we're able to go out and start looking at some of the things that science has said and ask the question, does this line up with what scripture says or not? And one of those places where I started looking at this that fascinates me. I'm a, a, a physicist, an astrophysicist. Really, I do astronomy, I do physics with a telescope. But, you know, looking out at how the heavens behave is just fascinating to me. And I had a course when I was in college. It was a history of science course. And what I recognize is that when you look at what scientists have thought about the universe, it's changed pretty dramatically over the last 100 years. And so if you go back to the start of the 1900s, um, you know, here's the, the description of the universe, according to scientists, was that the universe was eternal and it existed forever. And you can kind of trace that back ultimately to Newton's ideas about gravity, because if you want to have a universe where gravity exists, but everything hasn't collapsed, his idea was maybe if the universe was infinite, then Nothing would, you know, nothing would be moving on the largest scales, and you could still have gravity work, so stars would move around the galaxy, planets would move around a star, moon would move around planets, but on the largest scales, everything's going to be static and, and unmoving. And that was the second view of the universe, that the universe was kind of static and unchanging. And start of the 1900s, we knew about electromagnetism and gravity or mechanics, and oddly enough, those two laws, if you will, when you move through the universe, they behaved differently. And so you could actually tell where you were in the universe by looking at how the laws worked. And I contrast that with the biblical view, because when you go look at the biblical view, one of the things that's very clear is that the universe begins to exist. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of creation ex nihilo is a very prominent doctrine that Christians have held throughout the centuries that the universe began to exist. If you just read through the various 
uh, read through Scripture and ask what attributes of Scripture are or of the universe are described most, one of those you come out with is that the universe has a dynamic nature to it. I put it expands up there, and that's a little bit of an overstatement because you know you have these biblical authors, multiple biblical authors, say that God is stretching out the heavens. I don't know that the biblical authors were thinking, oh yeah, the universe is expanding, but nonetheless, there's this dynamic nature being described about the heavens. And when you consider why the universe behaves the way it does or why the universe acts the way it does, it does that because of God's providence of holding creation in place. And so we would expect things to behave the same throughout the universe, You'll notice that these are two very different pictures. What the Bible seems to be describing about the universe and what science is describing about the universe really don't line up. So let's take a look, start in the 1900s, and ask the question, what has science found since that time? So if we start, one of the, the more fascinating things was Albert Einstein came along and he recognized that when things moved under gravity, and things moved under electromagnetism, that they behave differently. And he said, wait a second, that ought not to be the way things are. It ought to be that the laws of physics look the same and appear the same no matter where you are in the universe and how you're moving through the universe. Pretty simple philosophical idea, but he went and said, all right, what does it take to take that philosophical idea and put it into scientific form? And when he did that, the theory of special relativity and the theory of general relativity is what resulted from that. And so he came up with this idea of the theory of special and general relativity, which explicitly codify the idea that the laws of physics are the same throughout the universe. Now, when he was looking at his theories, what he recognized, there's a whole bunch of equations that govern them, and as he's trying to find solutions to those equations, what he recognized was that the solutions to these equations almost all the time had the universe either expanding or contracting. Now, so ingrained was the idea that the, law, that the universe was static on the largest scales that he actually went in and introduced a constant, and I don't mean to malign him. There's nothing mathematically wrong about that because these are inter integral and differential equations, and if you've ever worked with integral and differential equations, you know that there are constants floating around, and for all intents and purposes, he just specified one of those so that you get a static universe, and this is you know, called the cosmological constant. But what this did is two things. One, it made the universe static again, and two, it made the universe eternal. About 15 years passed, because that happens in 1916. Uh, Vespo Slifers looking at these uh, odd things out in the universe and measuring redshifts, and a lot of people are worrying. LaMaitre is looking at the equations of general relativity and figuring out what sorts of things. Hubble kind of takes and puts some of that together. And lo and behold, we find out that as you look out at distant galaxies, the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. That is the telltale signature of an expanding universe. So lo and behold, work in the early 1900s shows that we live in an expanding universe. But now if you've got an expanding universe, the question arises if it's expanding, is there, you know, it may go on forever, but has it always been going on forever? And so there were a number of ideas that arose that maybe the universe has been actually yeah, it's expanding, that it expands for a while, and then eventually gravity overcomes the expansion, it contracts, it rebounds somehow, we don't know how, but that's, you know, we'll try and figure that out, and then it, it just kind of keeps bouncing and expanding. And so again, you've got this, even though we live in an expanding universe, there's this mechanism by which the universe has always been around. And it turns out there's some thermodynamic problems with those considerations where you still end up at the beginning. And so a scientist said, well, okay, maybe here's another idea. Maybe the universe is expanding, and as it expands, space gets diluted enough, and where it gets diluted enough, new matter is being created there. Now, notice that when scientists did this, they didn't say, well, you can't do that. Conservation of energy says that, doesn't it? You can't do that. It said, well, here's an idea. How could we go out and test it? You know, and when Einstein said, hey, the laws of physics ought to be constant, and here's the model for it, nobody said, well, you don't get to bring philosophical and religious ideas in. The question was, how could we go out and test that? And as scientists looked, how could we test this? One of the ways you can test this steady state model 
is it has the prediction that space ought to look the same on all scales. So when you look close to us and very far away from us, everything ought to look exactly or very statistically the same. And it turns out we, this is right around the time we were finding quasars, and it turns out quasars tend to be more distant. They, there's none in our local universe. But really, the observation that put the nail in the coffin in this steady-state model was the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Because what that said is that if you look far enough away, the universe was much hotter in the past than it is today. And that's not something you can get out of the steady-state universe. And so this really put a Big Bang-type universe, that was the model that was now in play. Those, those kind of models were the ones that made sense of the observations we saw. And if a Big Bang model is a picture, the basic idea behind a Big Bang model is that you have a universe that uh, begins and it expands and grows, and as it grows, it cools off, and the amount of usable energy decays because thermodynamics and the laws of physics being constant say the amount of usable energy decays. And so this is the picture that is being advocated. And, and then people ask the question, okay, so if that's the kind of model we have, does that have a beginning or not? And it turns out that work by Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, a bunch of other people, showed that if you take any sort of matter and you say, all right, let's run it backwards in time, it turns out that you end up in these singularities where you get infinities and the laws of physics break down, and that looks a lot like a beginning. And so we have the idea that our universe had a beginning. You get these singularity theorems that arise. Now, there are some conditions on those, and as we continue to study how the universe works, figure out that there's some oddities about the cosmic microwave background radiation, and there are no magnetic monopoles, and it's flat, and, and this idea comes along that early in the history of our universe, there was this period of inflation where the universe grew very rapidly. Now, the fact how this inflation worked means that those singularity theorems no longer apply because the conditions no longer are met by inflation. And what's more fascinating is as you're looking at inflation, it looks like <clears throat> the way inflation works is you've got this stuff that inflates, it grows really fast, and it decays down to its ground state, and our universe is in one of those bubbles, and there are a whole bunch, of, you would expect there to be more bubbles. I mean, you ever watched a pot boil and you just get one bubble? No, of course not. You get a whole bunch of bubbles. Well, in inflation, a whole bunch of bubbles means that we're just part of a vast multiverse. And once this inflation starts, it just goes on forever. It never stops. And the question arose, well, maybe it never had a beginning either. And so astronomers and scientists kept working and doing the calculations and making observations. And it turns out that, lo and behold, there are actually theorems you can say that even inflationary models still have a beginning. Now, in order to answer this question completely, and I'm not going to go into any more detail than just to say we need a quantum theory of gravity to really assess the question of whether we have a beginning, but when you look at what's happened throughout the 20th century, scientists said, no, there's no beginning. Oh, wait, no, it looks like there's a beginning. Well, here's a way where we don't need a beginning. And then, oh, no, that doesn't work. Oh, here's a way where we don't have a beginning. No, that doesn't work either. Oh, here's a way where we don't have a beginning. No, that doesn't work either. Seems like the universe keeps pushing us back towards a beginning. So if we now look at the picture of what does our universe look like according to the scientific picture, we have a universe that began that's expanding and it's governed by constant laws of physics. And as I look at that, I'm reminded of my dad's words. That's looking a lot like a creation account. But this isn't the only place that's happened. Uh, if you're really interested in reading about that, I wrote two books on this because this question really fascinates me. Do we live in a multiverse? Is there a beginning? And so you, you can see my struggles and what I found as I wrestled through those. That's why I'm promoting those uh, because I think they're just helpful for people who had those questions like I did. But there's other places where Scripture talks about what the universe ought to look like. And I found this one in Genesis 1, a very common passage. It's, you know, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, why I point that out is that 
if you talk of, if I generally ask the question, what did God create in Genesis 1? People will say, well, he created the universe, and he created the earth, and he created water, and light, and day, and night. And it turns out that's not true. God created the universe, he created certain animals, and he created humanity. And why that's important is that word for created has the idea of bringing something new into existence. It's different than the, word, the activity God did in bringing other things about. But humanity is created in the same way that the universe is created. That it's something God did bringing something new into existence. And so we would expect, as we look at the scientific record, that humanity is something new. Again, you go back and look at the history, and it turns out if you go back into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were kind of two ideas, and I, and I say two ideas of how humanity arose scientifically, and really there's one idea that most people thought, and another idea that kind of needs to be mentioned by way of, well, it was there, but nobody really thought that was the idea. The first idea that everybody thought was that humanity evolved in multiple places across the world. This is this multi-regionalism hypothesis. And the idea is that humanity evolved in, Africa, or in Asia, and humanity evolved in Africa, and humanity evolved in Australia, and humanity evolved in the Americas, and humanity evolved in Europe, and we just kind of have slowly mixed over time. This other idea was that humanity evolved in some region in Africa and then kind of spread out and filled and populated the globe. But almost everybody thought this multi-regional hypothesis was correct. And what's interesting, and I remember very vividly when I was in high school, there was this Time mag or Newsweek magazine came out, and on the picture was a picture of a woman. You know, it looked like something you might see out of a creation account. But the title was Mitochondrial Eve. And what scientists had figured out how to do is to isolate the DNA from the in the mitochondria. Now, everybody here knows what the mitochondria is, right? What does the mitochondria do? Powerhouse of the cell. Yeah, it never fails. Everybody knows that one bit of information about mitochondria. But there's this cool feature in that the DNA in the mitochondria you only get from your mother. So mother passes DNA to daughter, there's no contamination seems like such a weird word, but there's no contamination from the father's DNA there. So you, what you can do now is take DNA samples across the world from females, get those DNA samples, and ask the question, do they trace back to a common ancestor? And if so, roughly how long ago was it? And it turns out the answer to that, lo and behold, is yes. It does trace back to a common ancestor, something on the order of 100 to 200,000 years ago. Interestingly, you can do the exact same thing with males. There's DNA on the Y chromosome. Only males, you know, males have a Y chromosome, so father passes that father to son. So you can do that same study with the male DNA and ask the question, does it trace back to a common ancestor? And lo and behold, you get the same answer. It traces back something on the order of 100,000 to 200,000 years. Now, you go back 20 years ago and they got different dates, but as they kept working on it, realized, no, lo and behold, those are pretty much the same dates. And so the picture now is that you've got humanity traces itself back, or you can at least trace every female back to a common female ancestor, every male back to a common male ancestor. The picture scientifically is that humanity originated from a small population. Now, small population in this instance means anywhere from 1,000 to maybe 10,000. That's what the dominant view is, but that could arguably be two. Uh, from a single region, that region's typically in the Africa region, and roughly 100,000 years ago, and you have archaeological or genetic evidence and fossil evidence for that. It's starting to look a lot like a creation account. Now, it's not entirely there, but it's like, given what the thought was that humanity just evolved all over the globe many times, now this picture is humanity evolved from a small population in a single region from common ancestors and then spread out to fill a globe. That sounds a lot like what Scripture has been telling us is true, that Adam and Eve were created, that they were charged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to rule over it and subdue it. 
beginning to look a lot like a creation account. Other places, uh, you, know, I, you know, you can go, I find that fascinating, but there's other places, not just kind of some of the, you know, creation, evolution, Big Bang type stuff, but uh, the passage that I find interesting is this one out of uh, Exodus 14.20. This is where Moses uh, has led the Israelites out of Egypt, and he marches them up onto this large body of water, and they're backed up, and the, Israel, or, uh, the Egyptian army is bearing down on them, and they think they're going to die. And if you're like me growing up, you know, they get out and they cross the Red Sea and Charlton, I mean, Moses spreads, spreads his arms up big and the waters part and there's these huge walls of water and they walk across down through the bottom of the sea. Except, I find this interesting, you go look at the account, then Moses reached out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So God used a wind. About 10 years ago, I ran across this article. It's the dynamics of wind set down at Suez in the East Nile, Eastern Nile Delta. And what they modeled was say, okay, if there's a strong wind where you've got a large body of water with a river that's flowing into it, a fairly large river flowing into it, um, you know, if the wind comes at just the right way, what happens? And what they found, and I've kind of highlighted it down there at the bottom, it says, under a uniform 28 meters per second wind, and I think that's about 60, 70 miles an hour, easterly forcing wind in the reconstructed model basin, the ocean model produces an area of exposed mudflats where the river mouth opens into the lake. This land bridge is three to four kilometers long, five kilometers wide, and remains open for four hours. Interesting. Now, I, I'm not going to go and say, oh, here's how God did the, helped the Israelites cross the Red Sea. But if the fact that we come up and we say, oh, this is how the water separated and how Israel crossed the Red Sea, does that mean God was any less involved? No, in fact, Scripture told us that there were physical processes involved. And where there are physical processes involved, we might expect that we can find scientific understanding of how it works. This is one of the things that I find fascinating and I love about being a Christian and being a scientist is that we can figure out how things work. I love figuring out how things work. And if we can figure out how some of the, it's still a miracle, just because we figured out how it works, nobody would question whether the fact that this happened right at the night where the Israelites needed it, running away from the Egyptian army, and the Egyptian army never gave them problems afterwards, still miraculous and we might have an understanding of it. I think that's pretty fascinating. Other passages that you find as you look through Scripture. Uh, here's one that seems like, well, what does that have to do with science? It says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, in essence, it's saying, focus on gratitude. In fact, that's not just 1 Thessalonians. You can find that throughout the New Testament, even throughout the Old Testament. We are supposed to focus and be gracious, focus on the good, and to, to, to have gratitude. Turns out there's a reason why, though. And there's a, a paper published in the American Psychological Association. It's called The Headwinds, Tailwinds, Asymmetry. And I love the language that uh, people use. It's like, I know what all those words mean, but they don't seem to belong together. But basically what it's saying is this, that in any environment, you've either been aided by a tailwind or opposed by a headwind. And humans have this fundamental bias that we remember the headwinds much more and we forget that we've been benefited by the tailwinds. And they did a a number of studies that demonstrated how this played out. One of the studies, they asked all fans of a football team, does your team have a harder schedule or easier schedule than those out there? Universally, people said, our team's schedule is harder. And as long as the Chiefs don't play the Indianapolis Colts, I'm actually fine saying the schedules are good because we seem to always lose to the Indianapolis Colts. But, nonetheless, everybody said, regardless of whether your team was good, whether your team was bad, everybody seemed to say, yes, our team's schedule is harder. They looked at conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats, two different studies, and asked the question, does the Electoral College favor your party or the other party? 
everybody said it favors the other party. They looked at siblings, where, or families, where there are two siblings, an older and a younger sibling, and asked the question, do your parents favor you or your, other, your sibling? And it was always they favored the other sibling. And I find this even works out in three, because I have an older brother and a younger brother. And I, a, a conversation, my older brother, younger brother, and I were sitting around, got to talking about this very thing, and my older brother goes, yeah, mom and dad always did favor you, my younger brother. He was saying that to my younger brother. He goes, well, that's interesting, because I always thought mom and dad favored me, and I thought mom and dad always favored my older brother. So they're always favoring somebody else. So the idea that we see the headwinds, we remember those, is just natural. We forget about the blessings and the benefits. So Scripture is telling us, don't focus on the trials and the obstacles. I mean, obviously you have to deal with them, but don't put your focus there. Have gratitude, be thankful, give thanks, rejoice always. But it's more than that. Because what they found, and they did a study of, uh, of a particular econ- or a particular. Uh, professional discipline, one that was new, where they had more, you know, it was just harder to get it, it was a lot harder to get up and running. And what they found is that if you thought you had a harder road to get there, you were more likely to believe that you had been treated unfairly, and statistically speaking, you were more likely to engage in morally questionable behavior. Focusing on gratitude helps us live lives of integrity. Because we, yes, we recognize there are barriers and obstacles, but we are building character so that we focus on the blessings and the benefits. And that just leads to a better way of living. And I find that of great relevance today because there is a worldview that is infiltrating and coming in and becoming very prominent in our society that is teaching us that rather than looking at the world through the lens of truth and goodness and beauty, that we need to look at the world in terms of oppressors and oppressed. Well, in most instances, you're oppressed somehow. You're, you're, you're training people to see the barriers and the obstacles. We're already inclined to do that. And the more we think we've been treated unfairly, the more, statistically speaking, the more likely we are to engage in morally questionable behavior. So if we decide we want to look at the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed, we're going to cause damage to our society. That's not the worldview we want to look at. That's not the way we want to look at the world. And it, it helps me understand, you know, Paul makes a statement in Philippians that I've learned how to be content in every situation, whether I've got abundance or whether I have a need. It's because ultimately our gratitude is not predicated on our circumstances. Our gratitude is predicated on our relationship with Christ. And whether you're in the deepest, darkest dungeon or whether you're the most exalted king, that relationship with Christ is still foundational. Nothing about that changes. One more science passage, and then I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the philosophical underpinnings that science needs. But this is one. Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so you just read scripture, and we are designed for relationship. In fact, if you look at uh, Christianity, one of the most distinctive features of Christianity is that God is not a unitary God. He's not, well, I have to be careful how you say that. He's one God in three persons, but in his very nature, he is relational. He doesn't choose to relate. He relates by nature, and we are created in his image, and we are designed for that relationship, not only because we're created in his image, but we are explicitly told it's not good for us to be alone. We're designed to be in relationship. So, Back in the 1930s, uh, 1938 to be specific, there was a study that was in, started by a, a group at Harvard. It was actually studying uh, 238 sophomores at Harvard. At the time, Harvard was an all-guys school, so it was just 238 guys. But they have tracked those guys, their descendants, uh, and they've actually in- expanded the study to include women, inner-city children, so it's got a broad reach in demographics. 
And what they looked at was asking, okay, what sorts of conditions, the study's still ongoing, so this is 80 years into the study now, what sorts of things correlate with good health and long life? And it turns out that among other things, what they found is that embracing community helps us live longer and be happier. I mean, among the things they found were that if you ask the question, what leads to healthy 90 or living, living to 90 and being healthy when you get there, the thing that most correlated with that was not what sort of diet you ate or uh, you know, whether you jogged enough or what. It, the thing that correlated with that was good, healthy relationships when you're 50 years old, in your 50s. I'm excited about that because I'm 50-ish and I'm enjoying my relationships. So I'm thinking I got a chance at having a healthy 90-year-old life here. But, but other things they found, things that staved off dementia were good mother-child relationships as they were growing up. I mean, it's like the, the impact of relationships just stood out glaringly in this study. In fact, one of the leaders, uh, directors of the study, uh, made this statement. Those who kept warm relationships got to live longer and happier, said Waldinger. The loners often died earlier. Loneliness kills, he said. It's as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. Now, get what he's saying there. Smoking kills because we understand the physical consequences of smoking. Alcoholism kills because we understand the physical consequences of alcoholism. Loneliness kills because it has physical consequences like alcoholism and smoking. That, you know, again, you talk about where what we find scientifically and does that line up with what Scripture says? Well, according to Scripture, we are not just physical beings. We are not just spiritual beings. We are a union of a physical and spiritual. And that way we would expect that our spiritual, our spiritual being affects our physical being and vice versa. That's exactly what this study's showing. And it shows it in spades. I mean, this isn't like, well, just kind of side results. This is the main emphasis, is that relationships are incredibly important. Our relationships drive so much about our physical health especially as we get older. So we find a lot of stuff where science affirms what Scripture has said. So if God has revealed himself in Scripture, we go look at what the science is finding, and at times it seems like it's contradictory or opposed to what Scripture says. But the more we study, it seems to line up with what Scripture says. It looks a lot more like a creation account. One last point I want to make just kind of summarizing all that, is that the truth about the universe we find through science will ultimately point to God, give it enough time. Because often when we first start studying something, it seems like it's against God. That's what I thought was true of the multiverse. That was what I thought was true of studies about looking for life out on other planets. But the more we study, the more you'll find, yeah, this does actually point to God. And where the Bible describes how the universe works, we can expect science to affirm that description as science has the capacity to actually engage and really make the progress in understanding what's going on there. But it's also a little deeper than that, because if we look at what does science need to operate, science actually needs a certain worldview to be operating. For one thing, the laws of nature need to be uniform throughout the universe, because if what goes on here on earth doesn't apply out in the universe, how in the world do I get to study what's going on out there? I have no way of measuring and knowing what's going on. If there's different stuff out there than what's here, I don't have any tools. So the laws of physics have to be uniform throughout the physical universe. The physical universe needs to be a distinct and objective reality. You know, and I contrast that with Hinduism, because in Hinduism, ultimately, the physical world is an illusion. You want to recognize the illusion and engage in the true spiritual aspect of things. That's what you're shooting for. But if that's the truth, why in the world would we want, would we want to study this illusion that's out there? There's just no reason to do it. You also need the laws of nature to exhibit orderly patterns and regularity. And I just think of that, you know, go back to Greek mythology. I enjoyed studying Greek mythology. But if you got Zeus being angry and throwing lightning bolts, and you got Poseidon having fun and neglecting caring about things, 
you're not going to expect what goes on in the atmosphere and our understanding there to be able to transfer through fluid dynamics and realizing that the atmosphere is a fluid and water is a fluid, and so these same principles ought to apply to both because you've got two capricious deities that are governing what goes on in the two. But if you've got one God who sustains creation, lo and behold, you can expect orderly and regular behavior throughout the creation. You need to have the universe, it's got to be intelligible. I mean, it could be that there's orders, patterns, and regularity in the laws of physics constant, but we just can't understand it. That's entirely possible. But you also need the world to not be divine like it is in many Eastern or basic religions. Because if the world's divine, you don't go out to study it and experiment on it and put it in the lab and try and understand. You worship. Similarly, the world's got to be good, valuable, and worthy of study. I remember reading a book, uh, I think it was called Siddhartha when I was in college. And you know the fellow ultimately sat out along the banks of the river and just enjoyed watching the river. And I mean, I love watching rivers, so that's true. But the world, you needed to be detached from the world. That's where you got genuine enlightenment. If you want to detach yourself from the world, again, why do you want to spend any resources trying to understand how this world works? So it doesn't mean that Buddhism is wrong. It just means that if you want a vibrant scientific enterprise, you've got to have a worldview that supports that, and Buddhism won't do that for you. You know, there's a few things you got to have, uh, you know, the whole point of science is make a model and test it and see if it works. So you got to have, the, the creator has to have some free agency. Uh, that doesn't mean that he might get traded to another team later. It just means that he has choices in what he could have made. You know, we need to uh, be truthful when we report things. We need to uh, be integrity. You know, there's, there's just virtues, intellectual virtues that we need. But there's also one more thing, and I think this is a particularly relevant idea for today because we're growing in this idea that there is no God, that atheism is the best explanation for it. But if atheism is true, why would we expect our minds to actually have any capacity to understand the creation? And, and the reason I say that, and, and I'll just close with this, because C.S. Lewis said it so well, that ultimately, if God does not exist or there is no God, then everything is just a collection of motions of atoms. That there's no rhyme, reason, or, pur or there could be order and regularity, but there's no purpose behind it. It's just atoms colliding together, and all of them are accidental, and that there's, there's no purpose behind it all. But he said it this way. If the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident, and the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. This holds for the thoughts of the materialists and the astronomers as well as for anyone else's. But if their thoughts of materialism and astronomy are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident, our thoughts, should give me a correct account of all the other accidents. So why is this important? Many people think that as science is progressing, it's showing that no God exists and this world, the physical material world, is all there is. But what they're missing in that discussion is that the reason the scientific enterprise got off the ground strong case can be made for this, is because there was the worldview that allowed it to flourish. A worldview where our minds, we can trust our thoughts because they're ultimately formed from the image of God. That the world is orderly and regular. It's got patterns that can be discovered, that our minds can actually discover them. That those patterns are constant throughout the universe. That the universe is good and worthy of study, but it's not to be worshipped. And there's only one worldview which anchors all of those philosophical presuppositions that you need for science to work. And that's the Judeo-Christian worldview. So I think if you ask the question, is science an ally of Christianity? I would say absolutely yes, because what we find is as we continue to investigate, the world that we see actually lines up with the world that Scripture describes. I think that's pretty fascinating. 
So if you want, we got some a resource out there you can scan that code and get. But we do have about 15 minutes here before uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break or have some things. So I'm going to throw the floor open to see if anybody has any questions or comments about what I have brought today. Yes, over here. So this question, the question is, will the new heavens and new earth be based on the same physics or mathematics as this world? Um, I don't have a complete answer to that, but what I can say is this. When you look at this universe, there is one fundamental feature that I think is incompatible with an eternal creation, which is what I think the new heavens and new earth will be, is that in this universe, the amount of usable energy is always decaying and it will eventually run out. In fact, you can show, unless something we don't understand something about physics and something can change at some point, and, and by change I mean fundamental laws of physics, not, you know, this would be a huge change if that were the case. You can show that eventually the entire universe will all come to the same temperature, and once everything comes to the same temperature, it's entirely impossible for any sort of life to live or any sort of work to be done. Now, that's like two trillion years, so it's a little while. Uh, I'm not too worried about that in the, in, in the immediate term here. But it does say that the laws of physics, or the way this universe is constructed, is not compatible with eternal life. So there's something fundamentally different about the new heavens and new earth. Now, all that being said, when you read scripture, in the new heavens and new earth, things are recognizable from one to the other. So there's some sort of continuity and discontinuity at the same time. But as, as for exactly what that is, I don't know. But there is something fundamentally different. Yes? Mm -hmm. So that's a, a good question. So what's kind of a, a place where most perplexing where science and Christianity seem to really be at odds? I, I do think there's a lot of things in the study of biological evolution that kind of show up in there. I mean, I kind of painted one picture on the grand scale of, you know, is it multi-regionalism or the out of Africa and showed that, you know, that, that this lines up. But there's a whole lot of details in there where the scientific data, I just don't know, it's not that I think it's against what Christianity says, it's that I don't know how to reconcile it because we don't have the data we need. But there is one place where I think the data is strong and growing stronger that is hard for me to reconcile. I, or that, that causes me to think and wonder, wh where is this going to end up? Is that when we look at... DNA. We can actually look at DNA from humans across the globe. We can extract DNA from ancient species that have gone extinct. And one of those species that we can extract DNA from is Neanderthals. Now, when we look at the Neanderthal DNA, what we can show it very clearly is that when you look at the variance within the human population of the DNA, you can find that the Neanderthal DNA is outside that range. So Neanderthals were not humans. They're, they've got a distinct DNA to them, which means they're not in our genetic lineage. There's a whole lot of conclusions we can draw from that. Okay, fine and dandy. That all makes sense to me. Now, as you go in and look, there are sections of Neanderthal DNA in the human genome. Which means, so, the most parsimonious explanation is that somewhere in the human lineage, humans played around with Neanderthals. Now, that, all, that is all, not all that surprising to me, because you find references in Scripture against speciality and other things. That doesn't surprise me. Humanity never, never underbet on the depravity of humanity. I mean, we can do awful things. 
But what troubles me, or where I don't, I'm not sure where this is going to end up or how it's going to play out, I don't have any problems with the idea that there are humans that did stuff like that. But for that to get into the human genome means that those had to reproduce, and somehow that reproduction had to get back incorporated into the human genetic material. And what does that mean? Because if you've got a human and a Neanderthal that somehow breed and there's offspring that comes out of that, is that human? Is it Neanderthal? I mean, there's a whole lot of weird theological questions surrounding that. I don't think it's a showstopper. It's certainly icky at some level. But that's probably the one that I find the most, mm, I'm not sure where that's going to end up yet. So back here. Right. No, no, you're right. There's certainly references in Scripture that humans are not the only thing that humans can produce offspring with. And so that, you know, I, I see the, there, there's at least references that would make that, okay, that's coherent with what Scripture is saying, yeah. I don't have a chance to think about it, and quite honestly, I just don't have the knowledgeable expertise. I, I, it could be, it might not be, I just don't have enough to weigh in one way or the other that would just be given more than my thoughts or opinion about the subject. And so, without being able to do some more studies, I'm inclined to think that references to something more spiritual than just the Neanderthals, but I, I, I don't know. So, I'm not going to weigh in any more than that. Mm -hmm. It's related to that, and, and the actual, the details are a little bit, it's not just like, oh, we found a little bit, it's like there are other signatures of the more, you know, where you, where that, ingression of Neanderthal DNA, there's, there's a lot more data to play in with that. But yes, what, you do, what you're highlighting is that as we've understood the genetic code, that gives us a tool for asking, is there common ancestry that's going on? And that's often used for that. I think there, the picture to that is more complicated because I think you can make an argument that a lot of those common ancestry things could also be explained by common design. Um, and if you ever do computer programming, uh, you could find a genetic or a, a, an evolutionary ancestry to a lot of the computer code I wrote. The reality of it is, ooh, that worked well, I'm going to reuse it. Uh, you know, so that same sort of thing. It wouldn't surprise me if God's reusing genetic designs because they work really well. Uh, but that, that's a very interesting question and, and how that, uh, that's why it's a very fruitful area of research in, the, in today. Uh, we're, actually, we're going to go back here. You haven't had a chance. So Vern Poythers wrote on what specific, the, the Neanderthal DNA discussion or science faith discussion? I will say I haven't studied his work in detail. I find him to be a kindred spirit in, in the sense that uh, what I have experienced from him seems to line up a lot with reasons to believe in the, way I, in the way we think. But where I'm saying, you know, God upholds creation and that's why we see the laws of physics, that seems to be very much God's laws are being, you know, that they're not physics laws, they're a reflection of how God is upholding creation, and so in that sense, they would be God's laws. We're just calling them the laws of physics, but ultimately, they, ref they flow out of his character and how he's, and his nature. So I, I, 
I find Vern Poitras, to the extent I've read him, a very kindred spirit. So, yeah, here, and then I think we got one more after that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Mm hmm. I think it was the Pool of Siloam, if I remember correctly, yeah. It's entirely possible, and, and the only thing I would say is we need to be careful. I could come up with lots of, well, this is possible, this is possible. It could be Jesus was performing a fiat miracle, and the process was important for the man to learn something else. It could be the process was important for the healing, or it could be many, many other things. So I think all that's possible. Really, my point in making that statement or, or bringing up those illustrations is that the fact that we can somehow at times get an understanding of maybe this was what was going on physically during the miracle, that in no way takes away from the fact that God was active and that a miracle was performed. But some places, he alludes to physical processes that may give us insight into what was going on. It could, it could be. I, I it, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, it's certainly possible, and that probably requires a better understanding of Greek literature than I have to be able to weigh on that. I haven't heard any theologians argue that in any sort of compelling way that most theologians agree on. I think there was one more way back there in the blue. Kind of flesh that out. I, I'm, I, I, I hear the words and I'm trying to connect and understand what you're asking. <laughs> okay. Well, here, let, let me throw this couple of comments and see if it gets at what you're saying. So my two things that I think would weigh in on my answer to you. One, as far as I see what the science is doing, that science is looking at natural phenomena and providing natural explanations for those natural phenomena. As a Christian, what I'm coming in and saying, okay, given your explanation of the natural phenomena, does that line up with what I would expect given the way Scripture describes some of that natural phenomena? When it comes to the kingdom of heaven is here and future, the, the physical part of that is this physical world is kind of unchanging in the sense that the laws that govern it are the way they are. In the new creation... I see that there's going to be new physics that show up there. And so the f I, I don't expect to see any sort of aspect of that show up necessarily in the physical world. But what I do think is interesting, you know, and this kind of relates to the study about the relationships, is that you can do all you want with the physical and that doesn't quite take care of you. There's another non-physical component and it's not just the I need contact and relationships there's there's something different about our relationships because we're fundamentally a union of physical and spiritual and so that's the place where I see that showing up it's the the physical is this physical world and there's going to be a new physical world we're in but the spiritual shows up in the relationships because that's fundamentally where we're created in God's image that we are spiritual beings not just physical beings. Does that get at your question? Okay.
Yeah, we got one minute. So if you got a short question, right back here, Mr. Indianapolis. Um, no, I haven't, and the reason why is this, is that very often we look at things and attribute bad motives, or not bad motives, um, detrimental effects to them. You know, you know, we think of, a lot of people think viruses and bacteria are bad, and it turns out that they're not bad. We fundamentally wouldn't work if they weren't there. It's where they get outside their normal range, that's where the problems show up. And without entropy, we don't, chew and digest food, we don't, I mean, all of the stuff that we do that, that is important, our work and everything, relies on entropy. I think that's fundamentally the way God made this world, because this world is tempor or fundamentally temporary. It was here for a while to accomplish a purpose, and when it does, then we'll be in the new heaven and new earth. Now, in the new heaven and new earth, I don't think there will be entropy, because it's no longer necessary. But I still think it's fundamentally part of how God created this world and what he intended for it. And so I wouldn't want to attribute to Satan what God has done that way. Great questions. I will say, text your questions in. We're going to have more Q&A uh, on Saturday after we're done. But thank you for your time here tonight. <laughs>